Welcome, everyone, to another great edition of The Learning Curve, where we talk about very interesting topics with very interesting people. But of course, before we bring on interesting people, we talk about topics that we personally or professionally or even emotionally find interesting. And of course, I could never do any of this without Kara, who, of course, last week, was able to trade me in, speak badly about me to a thousand of our <laughs> listeners. And I refused to listen to that session because of that. But I'm back, and unfortunately, you have to deal with me now. <laughs> I'm glad you're back, Gerard. You were actually missed, and we made appropriate fun. I have to make fun of your yachting and your champagne drinking, because we all know that's what you're... When in reality, of course, you are the busiest guy I know... What are you doing this week? You've got like a high performing cadre of school leaders that you're mentoring. I mean, come on, it never stops. And I wish that I could actually be there with you right now, but I am in beautiful Michigan. Yes, Michigan, as we say here with my family. So, oh, good for you. Well, listeners, she mentioned the event that I'm doing. So, Uh, As you know, I'm the vice president for education at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation and a fellow of practice at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture here at the University of Virginia. And last week we hosted uh, 14 people. Uh, Twelve of them are principals of public schools. Three were charter schools and two were researchers. And this week we have 11 private school principals and one researcher from across the country. And we're bringing them here to basically share our research that we do on culture, on character and student formation. And they are in fact the first group of K-12 leaders in the country to ever do a deep dive into our recent report uh, called the context of their character, where we have actually gathered data, 95 plus plus questions from 3000 adults and 3000 high school students in 10 education sectors be it uh, traditional public school, charter school, urban school, rural school, independent Muslim school, Jewish school, Catholic, and even during the Protestant, we have different denominations and homeschooling. So first of its type in the country, and part of my coming here to the Institute and Foundation is to take all the great work we do and to start to share it with uh, practitioners and scholars. And listeners, you should know that I invited Kara, to actually come. He but she did. said, unless she's going to fly first class, she couldn't. <laughs> and that was above our budget. So that's why. No, she's let's be here. honest, Gerard. I said, unless you're going to battle my four year old for his mommy time. We're <laughs> well, I have to do that weekly with you now. So that wasn't a hard uh, lift. No. Hey, but real quick, I have to say, yay pluralism, yay cross sector collaboration, yay you. I can't wait to read that report because that is some serious data. And you know we love talking about character education and character formation in very data-driven ways. So cheers to you, my friend. That sounds like amazing work. And I am sad not to be there. No, it won't be the last one we have. It's the first of two, and then we're off for the summer. Well, not off, not off. We're not doing any more. But in the fall, uh, we're going to have one uh, virtually. And then next year, we're going to bring in 100 teachers and uh, educators. So you and I are already doing some uh, pretty good work that could lead up to, to projects like that. So look forward to uh, keeping you and our very dedicated listeners abreast. 
Awesome. So what's on your radar this week, Gerard? We've got there there are a lot of stories that are percolating in the I don't know, in the Twitter sphere, in the blogosphere. What where are they percolating? There's a lot to talk about this week. Not it's even just, we won't even touch on the Olympics, my friends. <laughs> well, I've got to say I've been watching volleyball and swimming, and nearly half of the medals that we have are in swimming. Uh, both of my girls are in swimming now, so I've got a more of an interest in it than usual, but also watching a volleyball. So yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Good stuff for my California days, volleyball and swimming. Yeah, you need to watch the skateboarding, too. I was watching women skateboarding the other day. It's so cool. You know so, what? I did not know that skateboarding is now a... Right? And sport. surfing. This is the first yeah. year for surfing. So, and I remember growing up in California, of course, you would say in the 40s. But in the uh, 60s and 70s, really in the 70s, you had a group of uh, kids in the valley who started skateboarding. And not saying they're the first ones in the country, but to think that it moved from a Southern California, you know, hobby to movement to now a sport. And I heard three, three on three basketball is now an Olympic sport. Really? I didn't know that. Is that a joke? No. Well, I'm saying that because a friend of mine who played three on three basketball said, I can't believe it's now an Olympic sport. So I'm not going to say his name, but if I found out it's not, I'm going to out him. I just found my Olympics. into the Olympics. You know, I'm a great three on three, but I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> no it, you know hey who knows maybe there'll be one for the work that we do podcasting yes awesome well since you brought up character there is someone of character in the american national narrative on human rights and civil rights named bob oh. moses who died recently at the age of 86 uh the uh first time i had a chance to meet him was at a pioneer institute event uh, that Jane and his team put together to talk about Martin Luther King, civil rights movement, and the teaching of it in our schools. And people who know him uh, will tell you he's a pretty quiet person, very reflective, listens, and then moves. And so that was the first time I met him. The second time uh, was when I was uh, commissioner in Florida. Uh, he was there. In fact, he died in Florida. And he had come to an event to talk about the work that he was doing with the Algebra Project. He is a MacArthur genius fellow award winner. And wow. he is the, also the author of, or I should say the author of the creator of the algebra project. And as a person growing up in the, in, uh, uh, in America during the time of major segregation in the South, he decided to take his talents in mathematics and teaching uh, to Mississippi, a state that when you say Mississippi, it's always for the negative things. And he says, well, I'm going to change that through education. So his outdoor project uh, basically said I can take students no matter where they live, whether it's the Delta or in the big city, and actually make them fall in love with math. And he used that project in Mississippi and then took it through and to different school systems throughout the country. But he also used his talent in the area of reconciliation and conversations across race and across regions. And so he died. I would say people should take a look at uh, some of his work. I did mention him once as a reference in a Washington Post article that I had written saying that if we as public school leaders, private school leaders, really as families are just trying to figure out how to make people fall in love with mathematics, we should take a look at the algebra project because he has proven that your zip code will not zip like you away from opportunity. You just have to have the right program. And he was someone who uh, walked like he talked. Uh, I met his daughter one time, so my condolences uh, to her uh, who lives in Atlanta, but uh, someone of character. And as we're thinking about people to look at as adults for our children and in their, in their life histories, 
he's someone to uh, just look at. Absolutely, Gerard. And you know, stuff like the Algebra Project so important. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but a great colleague of mine does does work on just the lack of access that kids have to even algebra in high school in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, I mean, we could talk on another episode about like what kind of math we should be teaching in school and et cetera, et cetera. But having access to something like algebra it should be just a basic, uh, like a, a, a right, right, when it comes to school. And too many kids don't. And he did Absolutely. Just such important work. So great loss, a great loss. Gerard, this week we've got another, so far not a great loss, but boy, uh, potential, you know, pain here. And that is, I'm sure you've been hearing and reading about what the House Appropriations Committee is trying to do yet again to our charter public schools. So much talked about right now. Um, I know like in our circles, those of us who really care deeply about charter public schools and the great things that they do for the 3.3 million or more children that are currently being served, you know, federal programs are really important to helping charter schools with things like starting up facilities and, and and getting them getting them up and running. And we don't have to rehash the fact that so many high-performing charter schools and charter networks in this country um, have relied upon federal funds for their very, very existence. And now here we have, in the midst of just tons and tons of money coming, like so much money going to public schools from Washington that we don't even know yet how public schools intend to spend this. There's, um, you know, the Biden administration had pledged to keep funding for um, federal funding for charter schools level, which they did. But now we have the House Appropriations Committee trying to actually cut the federal charter schools program. And then there's this other little caveat in here, um, which is a little bit sneaky because as I was reading, there are two sort of like separate provisions in this, in this language that, um, that sort of try and separate district schools, public schools from charter public schools, meaning that they're saying, they're trying to say that charter public schools should no longer be able to to contract with for-profit entities. Now, long been controversial, but Gerard, I have one quick question for you. And that is, as commissioner of education in two different states where you were responsible for all of the public schools in those states, um, do you think district schools, how often do they contract with for-profit entities, Gerard? Regularly. Uh, yeah, like this is a buses, lunches, right? All of the things, janitorial contracts, all of the things, this is normal behavior. But of course, once again, here are house Democrats in this case, really unfairly targeting our federal funding for charter public schools, which is just one more, you know, these schools already in almost every state where they exist operate at a deficit, especially when you consider facilities funding. And in many, many times they're serving kids at, um, you know, w- to help them achieve better academic outcomes. We have plenty of research to prove this. And this is just another like you know, thorn in the side of our charter public schools movement. So a call out to many of our listeners who I know, um, I know many of you really care about this issue that I think we need to be, we need to be really vocal and highlight the the many ways in which um, too many special interest groups in this country continue to try and take away these what can be wonderful options for students and parents. Because at the end of the day, if charter schools don't receive the funding they rely on, they absolutely cannot continue to exist in the way that we know them now. Any thoughts on this, Gerard? 
The charter, uh, the charter school program is 25 years old, and it's the only dedicated federal funding source to charter schools nationwide. If you take a look at the networks of schools and some of the individual mom and pop schools that have been able to grow, uh, in part, it's been because of the investment from the charter school program. So I want to just uh, give a shout out to Nina Reese and Absolutely. to Nathan Shelton and to Kim Smith and all those who are working with uh, charter schools, not only providers and authorizers, uh, also to Correga, uh, who's doing some work, because this is a tough political battle. It's not the first one within the charter movement. It's just a new one. And the yeah. fact that it's coming from Democrats and the fact that it's coming from a party who under President Obama and President Clinton, exactly. President Clinton in fact created what we now know as the charter school office and led to charter school week. But this program, you know, has really been driven uh, by the Democrats. But we can't be too shocked uh, for a few reasons. Number one, in the Democratic Party's 2020 um, political platform, they actually notify us that they were going to oppose for-profit charter schools and also add conditioning to federal charter schools, but also the NAACP, you know, between yeah. 1998 through 2016, uh, they passed or, or voted for resolutions opposing charter schools because of resegregation and privatization. So, uh, but not local and not local affiliates. Am I right on that, Gerard? A lot well, of the local affiliates, absolutely. Yeah. Some local, local affiliates did not, but ultimately it's the national uh, uh, that carries the weight. And so that's been going on for years. And so what we see bubbling to the top in 2021 isn't something that started in 2021. It started in the 1990s and also includes uh, the teachers unions as well. So, um, you know, a battle that uh, will, will, will be fought. But I will also ask not only our allies to get involved, but if you are a graduate of a charter school, if you have a nephew or a friend or someone who graduated from a charter school, who's a contractor for the charter schools, who uses, in fact, for-profit companies, you need to uh, write, call, email, go on podcasts and talk to your lawmakers in Congress and tell them that if, in fact, you want to change the economic trajectory of urban students, rural students across race, particularly for those from low-income backgrounds, we've got to do something to support this program. Absolutely. Couldn't couldn't have said it better, my friend. All right, Gerard, we've got someone coming up. I guess we're going to be talking to who could probably say a lot of things better. Not than you, of course. But we're going to be talking, Gerard, with Robert Woodson Sr. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center. We're excited to have him on the line. We're going to get him right after this. <laughs> Learning Curve listeners, it is a privilege to have with us today Robert Woodson Sr. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center, which works to empower leaders in troubled neighborhoods to increase public safety, spur upward mobility, and inspire racial unity in America. His new book is Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. Mr. Woodson, welcome to The Learning Curve. Pleased to be here. Uh, we are so pleased to have you. Okay, well, we got a lot of questions for you today. I know Gerard is eager, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, for our listeners who who don't know, although I'm sure many of them do, 
Over the course of several decades, you have devoted your career to civil rights and serving low-income neighborhoods by addressing what are increasingly thorny issues related to public safety, education, and racial equity and unity. So let's just start with the with the meaty stuff. Um, we would love to hear your thoughts on this current moment on where race relations stand today after the murder of George Floyd calls to defund the police and, you know, this ongoing, very painful struggle to reform the country's larger urban school districts. What what do you see? Well, I just think we're in worse condition now than we have ever been um, before when we were fighting racism and discrimination, we were fighting enemies that were external to the black community. And the civil rights movement was characterized by spirited debate as to the way forward. Um, Now, there is no debate within the civil rights community and they have uh, allowed the civil rights movement uh, to be hijacked, perverted, uh, into a race grievance industry. And uh, also the, the, the plight of poor blacks have, are suffering as a consequence. Um, and so when, when we were fighting for the, for, for the uh, opening up of opportunities, uh, I, I left the civil rights movement because a lot of people who suffered and sacrificed most did not benefit from the change. I remember uh, when we were picketing outside of a pharmaceutical company and when they integrated that high nine black PhD chemist, when we asked them to join the movement, they said they got these jobs because they were qualified. And so after several incidents like that, I realized that I was in the wrong struggle, that the civil rights movement opened the doors of opportunity. But when uh, the resources arrived, it went to uh, professionally trained blacks, but it did not help those in the communities. And so I left the civil rights movement and began to uh, work on behalf of low income people of all groups. I also left the, mo- uh, the movement on the whole issue of forced busing for integration. I believe that we made a fundamental mistake uh, because the opposite of segregation is desegregation, not integration. Mm. And, and so that, uh, of course, was um, a, a point of of, of difference with the traditional leadership. So I have spent the rest of the decades of my life working on behalf of low-income people of, uh, of all races. And um, so that's it. Well, it, well, absolutely. And I'd like to push a little bit on your experience specifically in Boston, um, where, you know, where I live, where Pioneer Institute lives. And, you know, in the early 70s, you were sent to Boston, you were working for the Urban League, and you were sent there to observe the <laughs> the crisis, the busing crisis that divided this city. So I'm curious about a couple things. I'm curious to, to, to hear <laughs> about what you saw in terms of race, especially in K-12 education politics in Boston and in other northern cities, we should say, who I think often, often we in the north don't own our, our issues. Um, but But then beyond that, you know, you've already given us a, a little bit of insight into into what you saw with regard to busing. What have you seen anything, any promising initiatives to increase opportunities for those who haven't traditionally had them in the K to 12 system? Well, first of all, I, I think I need to just say a little bit about my experience in 73. 
it just reinforced the reason why I left the movement in the first place. Um, you, you, uh, where Judge Garrity asked the black community what they wanted in terms of either strengthening the existing neighborhood schools or that they want forced busing. And there were town hall meetings all over. And the communities, uh, they opted to have strengthened the existing schools. But the civil rights leadership and the attorneys representing them told Judge Garrity to ignore what the people wanted and bust them. But none of the civil rights leaders had their children on those buses. And they were busing children from a superior black high school into an inferior white school. And one white mother, I think, summarized it when she said, yeah, bus your children in here. They'll graduate as dumb as our children. And so the the interest of the so-called leadership and the interest of the people suffering the problem is another example as they were at odds with one another. And and those differences exist today to the detriment of low-income blacks. They do exist today to the detriment of low-income blacks. And in in Boston specifically, we continue to see um, failure of any number of schools and uh, and and those failing schools disproportionately populated by um, by children who don't have access to any other schools, right? So by low-income children of color in so many cases. Now, some would right, say and that- Also, had- the leadership opposed busing, I mean, opposed choice or vouchers when every one of the Eleanor Holmes Norton, Jesse Jackson Jr., Frank Smith, the super, black superintendent of DC schools, all had their children at Sidwell Friends School and not in the public schools, but they fought against giving low-income blacks the same options that their income enabled them to enjoy. Succinctly put, I, I think that my friend Gerard here is itching to jump in, so I'm gonna I'm gonna yield the microphone to him for a moment. <laughs> You know, it's so interesting to hear your background in Boston because I remember learning about Project Exodus and the role that black families played uh, in creating their own service, uh, either to get the schools, but also making the yep. case that we wanted to improve their better schools. And what today is known as the METCO program, the second oldest voluntary uh, integration program in the country, the history behind that was actually built in the black community in Boston, which hardly ever gets any uh, consideration. So thanks for, for, for putting that, uh, at least talking about the Boston aspect in here. I recently received a copy of your uh, newest book, uh, Red, White and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. Could you discuss with us the main arguments brought forward by the book um, and in the current environment in America? What's been the reactions to the publication? <laughs> Well, the reaction has been fascinating. It sold out in two weeks. Wow. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, Barnes and & Noble and Amazon sold out within two weeks, and they had to go print on demand. And so for a while, they had to only do uh, paperbacks. But now they're back in production, and you can get – we sold about 15,000 in three weeks. They sold about 5,000 5, e-books. Um, we, we developed some curriculum from those essays and within three weeks, uh, and we made them available uh, free online. And we had 15,000 downloads in the first two weeks. Uh, and the reason that we, we developed this 1776 
it was in response to Nicole Hannah-Jones and the people at the Washington I mean, New York Times who published 1619, where they tried to define, redefine American history as America's birth rate. The birth date should be 1619 when the first 20 African slaves arrived. And therefore, their conclusion is, as a consequence of, of, of America's birth defect of slavery, all America and its future should be viewed through the prism of race and all whites are victimizers and, and have privilege and all blacks are victims to be patronized. And so um, we took issue with that. And so we assembled some black scholars and activists and journalists, not all conservative either. And we wanted to offer not a counter debate, but we wanted to offer an aspirational and an inspirational narrative that defines black not in terms of, of, of oppression, but what was our response to oppression. And we gave examples of, of when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. Um, and so we, so, so we document our ability to achieve against the odds. We built hotels. We had our own railroad. Um, the, the Bronzeville section of, of Chicago, where there's such violence today and disinvestment, in 1929, they had a 731 Black-owned businesses, and we have $100 million in real estate assets. And there are other cities that have the same record of economic and social accomplishments with an out-of-wedlock birth of under 12%. And so what in our essays, we document and, 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 and demonstrate to the American public that Black America can never be defined by slavery and Jim Crow, uh, but by how we were able to achieve against the odds. Absolutely. And when you think about the creation of free universal education in the South, you wouldn't have had that had it not been for, you know, formerly uh, enslaved Africans who went into Reconstruction governments and they pushed that as an idea that not only benefited white children, but all people uh, who lived in the South. And that's an aspect of uh, American education history we often overlook. You talked about uh, 1776 and 1619. What's been the reaction from both blacks and non-blacks to why you know you do this? You know, are, are people saying, you know, what you did this because you're trying to discredit black people and you're trying to say slavery didn't exist? And on the other side, people are saying, hey, you're talking about the fact that you know black people, including the slave Africans during the time of the revolution, played a role in helping shape what our country has. How have you been dealing with both, both sides of that argument? Well, it's been very interesting because I had the only, uh, we, we've offered to debate them, they, they refuse. Um, but I, I did have a one hour debate with Hawk Newman, the, the New York head of Black, uh, Black Lives Matter. And we have an interesting exchange. And so I had a chance to pose this to him. I just said, if, if racism were as insidious as it is, then why are black people failing in institutions run by their own people. When we were achieving in those institutions in, in the, between 1920 and 1940, with the construction of 5,000 Rosenwald Booker T schools and how we closed the education gap between 1920 and 1940 from three years to six months. And so when you cite examples of blacks achieving excellence in the presence of oppression, he didn't have a, a response to that. 
Hmm. Okay. So he, he did, and, and it's been very interesting. We have not had much criticism of the of the publication. I think the 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 other side wishes we just go away, and if we're ignored, then the, that's what they're doing. They're trying to ignore us. They sure turn down every opportunity to publicly debate the issue. So last question for me, um, people know about Thomas Sowell. We know about the late Walter Williams. You know, you've known them. You've been an influential uh, thinker uh, in American politics, public policy uh, and, and social thought for decades. You know, what do you say to the upcoming generation of Americans, uh, independent of color, race or creed? Because you've been very clear when you do your work uh, on poverty, you've traveled across the country. You don't see color. You see opportunity. You see uplift. What do you say to the next generation of people who want to uh, follow in your footsteps in this work? Well, we have a real deep bench of young, thoughtful uh, scholars and activists. I say, you know, we have a passion for the truth. We must pursue fact-based truth or else lies become normal. And you have to understand that what we should be, America doesn't have a race problem. It has a grace problem. Hmm. And so what we must do is that anytime you generalize about any group, whether it's women or blacks, poor people, anytime you generalize uh, about a group and then you try to apply remedies, the people at the top who are better educated will always benefit at the expense of those at the bottom. When you, and so what I say to, to the next generation, come with an open mind, but also emphasize strengths and solutions. Never in other words, we have a, a standard uh, response to all of our conference. You can never bring up a problem for which you don't have a suggested solution. Hmm. It may not be the solution, but it has to be a solution. So I would recommend that people stay solution focused. And uh, I, I consider my political f philosophy not conservatism, but radical pragmatism. My religion is a cardiac Christian, and my political philosophy is radical pragmatism. And I urge people it's, it, to look for alliances, as, as uh, people have said, black people have no permanent friends or permanent enemies, just permanent issues. And we must be issue focused and not get drawn into some emotional appeals to race. Well, I want to thank you for spending time with us. And I also want to end by sharing a story um, you've heard me tell before, but the listeners would not have. In the fall of 1987, I'm a first year student at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And Bob Woodson was on a panel with a few other people. And I heard him talk about the work that he was doing with young black men. Uh, in Detroit, uh, who had uh, children out of wedlock, uh, something uh, I had seen in uh, my neighborhood. Uh, in fact, uh, someone who did the same thing as well. And I remember him being the first person to actually speak not only common sense to what we could do for solutions, 
but he didn't browbeat the families as much as help uplift them and say, well, here you are. And I walked up to him afterwards and shook his hand with no idea that uh, that would play one of the five pivotal roles in my time at Howard University to make me think on how to use my life to advance common ideas and common sense in American uh, public policy. So it's always good to be with you. And uh, once we can get back on campus, uh, those who are listening, if you're on college campus and you want to bring a speaker uh, in person or virtual uh, and minus the cal uh, 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 cancel culture, because he trust me, he can handle that as well. Bob Woodson is someone you need to think about. Thank you so much, Bob. <laughs> and thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Learning Curve listeners, I get the distinct honor of the tweet of the week this week, in part because it is from our good friend, P. Diddy Wolf, uh, Patrick Wolf, giving a shout out to Lindsey Burke and Virginia Walden Ford about uh, D.C.'s plans to kill off once again. I mean, I feel like we talk about this every few years, the D.C. school choice program. So the D.C. voucher program, we know that um, especially the recent reports authored by Dr. Wolf, um, one of the lead premier researcher on these issues, that the D.C. voucher program is actually showing results for kids. Um, and so to take it away, to take these kinds of choices away from D.C. families is something that we constantly have to be defending defending against on the lookout for. I will say uh, on one positive note that DC has in the past decade become such a land of options that I think, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking listeners of a day when maybe we won't have to tweet or talk about this anymore. Um, coming up next week, Gerard and I are back and we are going to be talking to Michael Bindis of the Institute for Justice. He's the man who is going to be leading up the next big Supreme Court case that could finally put, what do we call them, the voucher wars, <laughs> to an end. So looking forward to talking with our friend Michael and looking forward to being back with our friends at Pioneer Institute and Gerard Robinson next week. Until then, take care, be safe, be healthy, and keep listening. Keep listening.